In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary, we don't know the contrast organically. We are back, Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vincent Emanuele, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm, where you can find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. So without further ado, on today's program, we will listen to Wendy Brown's lecture in The Account of Neoliberalism. Wendy Brown is a professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Her research interests include the history of political and social theory, continental philosophy, and critical theory, together with the examination of contemporary capitalism. In her research into the problems that plague contemporary capitalism and neoliberalism, Wendy Brown employs theoretical works of Michel Foucault, Max Weber, Sigmund Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, and the Frankfurt School. So without further ado, here's Wendy Brown's lecture in The Account of Neoliberalism. What I want to do is think about neoliberalism theorized through the very different frames of Marx and Foucault. There are other accounts of neoliberalism, of course, apart from those derivable from these two giants. But I focus here because of what I take to be the indispensable but non-trivial incongruence in the formulations of power, of agency, of truth, and of historical change in each. I personally cannot think without either of them. They're not my only compass points, but in thinking about neoliberalism, I cannot think without either of them. I cannot think neoliberalism without either of them, but they're not easy to think together. So I'm going to offer a small slice into this problem, one that concentrates on the question of the visible and the invisible, the knowable and the touchable, and the relation of truth to power in the account of neoliberalism that I take to be derivable from each. Why for each, yet for each differently, are the powers that organize and secure a neoliberal epoch invisible to the ordinary eye? Hence, especially difficult to target, to redirect, or to overthrow. But first, precisely what is meant by apprehending neoliberalism through Marx and Foucault, especially when Marx himself obviously was not theorizing this phenomenon. Indeed, the very question of the nature of neoliberalism is posed by differences between Marxist and Foucauldian approaches to identifying as well as analyzing its features. Is what we call neoliberalism primarily a set of state and global institutional policies comprising deregulation, privatization, regressive taxation, dismantled welfare states, disciplined and flexibilized labor, fiscal austerity, and all kinds of other features of what we've come to call structural adjustment? Or is neoliberalism a historically novel valuation, a novel construal, of states, of subjects, and of relations produced by a normative order of reason, an order of reason that submits every sphere and every activity to economization, 
not necessarily marketization and not necessarily monetization, but a normative order of reason called economization. Is neoliberalism, as Marxists would have it, fundamentally an organization of capitalism and its elements, capital, labor, production, profit, investment, commodification, finance, or is it a political rationality that departs production, exchange, and circulation to produce new kinds of subjects, new kinds of subjectivities, including in non-monetized domains? Is it a political rationality that orchestrates new ways of being rich or poor, of learning, loving, working, fighting, eating, exercising, parenting, and dying, new ways of being human together and apart with oneself and others? Now, these questions obviously already inaugurate a certain contrast of Marx and Foucault. For Marxists, if I'm going to compress the matter, neoliberalism is a modality of capitalism spearheaded in the 1970s by a capitalist class and its academic ideologues, enacted by major state actors and international institutions, Reagan, Thatcher, Volcker in the North, state elites, the IMF in the Global South. Neoliberalism is understood by Marxists to respond to capitalism's falling rate of profit in this period and to a shift of global economic gravity to OPEC, Asia, and other sites outside the West. It's understood to respond as well to what are often called Fordist rigidities in ownership and management and production and to the dilution of class power that is understood to be generated by redistributive welfare states, progressive taxes, large and lazy corporations, unions, and the expectations generated by educated democracies. From this perspective, what I'm compressing crudely as a Marxist account, actually comes pretty much straight out of Harvey and some others, neoliberalism is capitalism on steroids, state and IMF-backed consolidation of class power in the form of capital now released from regulatory as well as nation-state constraints. From this perspective, its marketization of new domains and its activities are continuous with the commodification and the exploitation that Marx identified in Das Kapital and the Manifesto. Financialization is understood as a kind of inevitable development from deregulation. That said, if for Marxists, neoliberalism comprises a set of concrete policies favoring capital, it is also understood by Marxists as an ideology. Neoliberalism is treated as touting free markets that are actually rigged by states and international institutions through instruments ranging from military coups to corporate tax breaks to debt peonage. It's understood as touting free labor actually disciplined through wage, benefit, and welfare cuts and unemployment generated by outsourcing as well as inflation caps. It's understood as an ideology also because it touts free trade and free enterprise in the developing world where it's actually organized by market discipline and structural adjustment that mandates, mandates replacing sustainable, diversified economies for debt-heavy, monoproduct export economies, replacing local ownership for foreign ownership, public services and industry with private and financialized ones. Above all, it's understood as ideological by equating market freedom with human freedom to court and using formal political equality to mask structurally generated inequalities. Again, for Marxists, neoliberalism, neoliberalism features nothing new, only intensifications of capital's ravenous, ravaging, and ideologically deceptive ways. For Foucault, on the other hand, neoliberalism 
is fundamentally, and I'm quoting him, a reprogramming of liberalism, not capitalism. According to Foucault, emerging in the second and third quarter of the 20th century from a disparate but intersecting group of anti-fascist and anti-socialist economists and philosophers from Freiburg, Vienna, and Chicago, neoliberalism recasts the state economy relation. It recasts the very normative value of markets, and it recasts or reestablishes a new set of incentives, constructing and conducting subjects who are now exhaustively, rather than only partially construed as homo economicus, as fundamentally economic actors. From this perspective, while neoliberalism certainly remakes and renews capitalism, indeed promises to rescue it from creeping socialism, it's more importantly a normative form of reason from which a wide-ranging new governmentality can be wrought. A governmentality that both economizes the state and produces the state as a servant of the economy. A governmentality that's also disseminated across a number of sites of non-state governance, from workplaces to prisons, schools to families, gyms to creches. But more and different from ideology, Neoliberal reason establishes a new, and I'm quoting Foucault again, reality principle on which a distinctive production and relationship of the legal, the economic, the political, the social, the citizen, and the subject are all founded. Political rationality, from a Foucaultian perspective, does not reflect or justify a material substratum. Rather, it brings a world into being through a governmentality based on its truth. The novelty here, in other words, rests less in economic policy than in a specific construal, a specific economization, first entrepreneurial, later on more investment-oriented, an economization of every institution, subject, and practice. The world-changing qualities of this new order pertain to its ubiquitous governance through this economization, not to its organization of class or exploitation or inequality. Again, economization is not equivalent for Foucault to commodification. And attention to this helps explain why neoliberalism increasingly detaches value and valuation from commodities, from exchange, and from profit in the world we now call financialized. Okay, so from this very quick sketch, a number of questions already emerge. Is neoliberalism a modality of capitalism or a new order of liberalism? If both, do they emerge from the same wellspring and converge in their effects? Or might there be two or more planes of neoliberal transformation, planes that operate in different times and spaces and feature somewhat different principles? Second question that I think this quick sketch poses is whether neoliberalism emerges from crises of capitalism, as Marxists would have it, or from crises in liberal governmentality, especially uh, represented by the rise of fascism in the first part of the 20th century, but also then by the rise of the social or welfare state, as Foucault's emphasis on the neoliberal intellectual's opposition to the combined threat of fascism, state planning, and socialism suggests. Or does it arise from both crises of capitalism and crises of liberal governmentality, but in an uncoordinated way? The third question 
that arises here is whether financialization is one with neoliberalism, an accident of neoliberalism, a divergent and altogether different development, or even contradictory to the programmatic aims of neoliberalism. A fourth question, is the neoliberalization of everyday life the one we all refer to all the time, every time we find ourselves checking our Fitbit or our rankings and ratings on Twitter or Facebook or elsewhere, is that neoliberalism the effect of a new form of reason or a new material development? Does truth govern the organization of wealth, as Foucault would have it, and produce a certain type of economic conduct and subject, or does the mode of production generate ideas, consciousness, and subjectivity, along with wealth, as Marx argues. Related, is neoliberalism to be understood fundamentally as a governing rationality or an ideology? A new truth capable of bringing a new world into being or a cover-up of truth? A drape of freedom and fairness over an order rigged for the rich and powerful? Is it a mode of biopoweristic governmentality or a new order of class power? Most scholars who work on neoliberalism fall to one side or the other of these questions. A few zigzag across them without minding the bumps, which is precisely what I did in my last book. And the rest of my talk tonight will try to approach these questions on one little corner of the rug by considering the question of the visibility and the knowability of power in each of the two modes of thought I want to think about. How and why for each, but differently, are the powers unfolding what we call neoliberalism today inherently mystified, making them difficult to resist or appropriate for emancipatory or egalitarian purposes? So I'll start with Marx and um, briefly talk about the problem of the invisibility of power in Marx, and here's where um, class members in, in, in my seminar um, can relax or daydream or whatever else, because they actually have been through this material. And then um, I'll turn to Foucault. As is well known, Marx's aim in Capital is to make manifest, to reveal the powers and dynamics of capitalism that he takes to be systematically obscured by capitalism's own structures and processes. From fetishism to the appearance of freedom and equality in the marketplace, from the source of profit to the rate of exploitation, capital is for Marx, excuse me, capitalism is for Marx inherently, not accidentally, self-mystifying. Thus, in the first German preface to capital, Marx calls upon the power of abstraction to reveal capital's nature. He writes, the value form, whose fully developed shape is the money form, is very simple and slight in content. Nevertheless, the human mind has sought in vain for more than 2,000 years to get to the bottom of it. While on the other hand, there's been at least an approximation to a successful analysis of forms which are much richer in content and more complex. Why? Because the complete body is easier to study than its cells. Moreover, in the analysis of economic forms, Marx writes, neither microscopes nor chemical reagents are of assistance. The power of abstraction must replace both. Now, in contrast with Marx's polemical disdain for what he calls the mere abstractions of the young Hegelians and classical political economists, 
This affirmative formulation of abstraction draws on one of Hegel's meanings, namely the idea that abstraction can untether thought from the phenomenal appearance of particulars so that we may grasp the relations and the determinations, bringing those particulars into being and producing their appearance. So for Marx, abstraction aimed at revealing what he calls the economic cell form, just as microscopes and chemical reagents reveal the biological cell form, this, this abstraction will, on the one hand, magnify to expose what can't be seen with the naked eye, and on the other, analytically reveal certain elements by isolating, separating, precipitating, just as reagents do. The economic cell form, Marx tells us, is the commodity form of the product of labor and the value form of the commodity, neither of which appear to the naked eye. Where commodities appear in the marketplace, they do not manifest their production process or relations. That is, they don't reveal the extraction of surplus value from labor that generates their value. Theoretical abstraction is thus needed precisely because the fundamental elements and dynamics of the economy, hence the truth of the capitalist economy, are not available to empiricism. They're not knowable by experience. They're not even deducible by analytic logics. Instead, Marx famously argues that to discover the secret of capital, we must, and I'm quoting him, leave the noisy sphere of the marketplace, where everything takes place on the surface and in full view, and instead enter the hidden abode of production, which, he notes, is marked by a no trespassing sign. And I want to suggest no trespassing in the literal sense of it being private property, but also no trespassing in the sense of us not being able to trespass there, not being able to walk in, not being able to see it with the naked eye. In short, breaking into capital, the phenomenon as well as the book, is to break into a world that is dark, dissimulated, privatized, but also invisible and intangible. Capital's truths, Marx essentially argues in Das Kapital, can only be arrived at theoretically. But why? What makes capitalism specially or even uniquely non-disclosive? Far from leaving this question aside, Marx adopts from Hegel the precept of history's non-transparency prior to its completion, while giving this precept a specific inflection in the economic domain and an even more specific inflection in the capitalist era. The story is familiar. The manifest economic world, the world of commodity circulation, markets, are neither the origin of value nor what can explain capitalism's fundamental relations or dynamics. Capitalism's surface, its appearance, is markets, but its essence is wage labor employed by private owners of the means of production. The radicalism of this claim is twofold. First, it contrasts with the perspective of the classical and later neoclassical and neoliberal economists, for whom capitalism's essence is markets, and for whom homo economicus is therefore figured as oriented exclusively by exchange calculations, being a marketeer, wheeling and dealing in the market from Smith's famous truck barter and exchange to utilitarians' understanding of us as calculating creatures who are trying to maximize benefit and minimize pain to contemporary understandings of us as entrepreneurial. So one um, bit of the radicalism of Marx's claim here has to do with the contrast between his understanding of where you're going to extract the secret of capital and reveal its truth the contrast between that and the uh, views of the classical economists, neoclassical economists, and neoliberal economists. But 
But the second aspect of the radicalism is that Marx's claim is not merely analytic, but both ontological and historiographic. Organized production of our subsistence, and through it, production of world, is the distinctively human thing, and for Marx, animates all human history. But capitalism is, he says, uniquely the mode of production in which markets overtake this fact at the phenomenal level. Why? Because of the separation of production from exchange, a separation made possible by commodification, whose own preconditions are the free circulation of capital, labor, and money. In other words, capitalism appears as a busy marketplace, a world of commodity exchange, while production recedes from view, is sequestered in the privately owned and controlled world of factories and other work sites. This appearance and this recession occur at every level. Commodification and the circulation of commodities are capitalism's distinguishing feature and power. The marketplace is the stage for exchanging commodities. And capitalism's signature is equivalence in the marketplace, where money is the great equalizer. Moreover, producers, laborers, themselves are bewitched by the appearance this separation generates. They fetishize commodities as objects of exchange value, rather than grasping their true nature as congealed social relations of production, or what Marx sometimes simply calls dead labor. This fetishism, importantly, is not incidental, but inherent. It's generated, according to Marx, by a series of separations between workers, between worker and product, and between production and exchange. So we're not accidentally fetishists, but doomed to be so, and doomed to the subsequent mystification of capitalist powers and the world those powers generate. So one argument that Marx offers for capitalism's non-self-disclosing nature pertains to these multiple, multifold separations, a feature of capitalism that he and later Weber also formulate as the basis for capital's tremendous productive power. These separations are precisely what um, generate the possibility of its power. But this is only part of the story of capitalism's self-mystification. Marx also argues that earlier modes of production were simply less complex than capitalism. I'm quoting him. They were transparent in their simplicity in production as well as distribution. You knew where stuff was coming from, how it was made, what it was worth. Of course, in pre-capitalist orders for Marx, there's still religious mystification, worship of nature, worship of deities, and naturalization of hierarchy, which is why real transparency about the world, of the world, only arrives, according to Marx, with collective ownership and control, communism. In short, in Marx's history of consciousness, there are first simple, direct relations obscured only by religious mysticism, then desacralizing capitalist relations that are systematically obscured by separations that generate reification and fetishism. And then, of course, finally, communism's resolution of both sources of mystification, full transparency. This history makes clearer what Marx requires from the power of abstraction in theorizing the true workings of capital. But even yet, we haven't quite exhausted the problem of the opacity of capitalism, the difficulty of seeing its true natures and powers. In a remarkable chapter of Capital, called The Transformation of Labor Power into Wages, 
Marx approaches yet from another angle how what he calls imaginary expressions of value, which invert reality, arise from capitalist relations of production themselves. Marx says this, all other modes of production feature a very clear demarcation between the labor, say, that a slave or a serf or a peasant performs for the master or the lord, and the labor that the serf or the slave or the peasant performs for her or his own sustenance. Only wage labor in capitalism invisibilizes this essential distinction, even though it's the very source of surplus value. Thus, Marx writes, all the notions of justice held by both worker and capitalist, all the mystifications of the capitalist mode of production, all capitalism's illusions about freedom, all the vulgar tricks of vulgar economics, have as their basis a form of appearance which makes the actual relation invisible and indeed presents to the eye the precise opposite of that relation. In sum, the non-manifest nature of capitalism is, for Marx, relentless and overdetermined. It arises first from a host of separations at the very heart of capital's power and productivity, separations that generate commodity fetishism. These include separation of the worker from the means of production, of production from circulation, of production from exchange, of capital from land, of town from country, production from the household, and more. But it arises second from a host of circulations that make it impossible to know where money, capital, labor, and commodities issue from. That's why Marx so frequently uses recourse to the metaphors of pimping and whoring, where you can't tell who and where something has been, where it's coming from, and where it's going next. How things acquire value, how they do their deeds. Thirdly, it emerges from a series of social fragmentations generated by private ownership and exchange that mask the cooperation and the interdependencies from which capital's very productivity and value and dynamics and crises issue. And finally, the invisibility of capitalism's true workers emerges from the wholesale invisibility of the very extraction of surplus value that's generated by the phenomenon of wage labor. The workers paid a wage, and it's impossible, except through abstracting from the actual process of production, to see which part of that wage is about reproducing, or uh, to what extent that wage is about reproducing the, the worker, and which part of the worker's production exceeds that wage and produces surplus value for the capitalist. Together, these effects mean that capitalism's true powers do not show and cannot be made to show, and it's what Marx compresses when he depicts capitalism and the processes and the truth of capitalism as that which goes on, to quote him, behind the backs of the producers. So capital for Marx is not just an inherent exploiter, but an inherent dissimulator. As part of its production process, capital generates and circulates a form of what Foucault calls veridiction opposite to its real nature, the real nature that can be revealed only by critical theory. This veridiction, I'm insisting, is not ideology. It's not a trick or a ruse invented by ideologues or the state or uh, the church or um, education or anything else. This veridiction is capitalist reason generated itself by capitalist production. So, of course, Marx famously counted on crises and contradictions to explode the secret, 
crises of accumulation, profit realization, overproduction, underconsumption, others. Now, this solution, of course, has been challenged both historiographically and historically. Histori historiographically, I would suggest, Marx's religion of dialectics and the political promise that it pinned to contradiction has been pretty thoroughly discredited. Historically, neoliberalism's economization of state, culture, social, and personal life, combined with financialization's implication of all classes in the fates of capital, means there's no outside to economic life in any sense of the word. Hence, no place where contradiction could become a means of critical knowledge or be otherwise generative. Consequently, Marx's account of the epistemologically vaulted quality of capitalist social relations, if correct, now figures a totality for which there quite literally appears no alternative, a problem to which I'll return in the conclusion. So much from Marx, let's go to Foucault. In the order of things, Foucault provides something of a diagnostic of the epistemology of invisible powers and truths that we just saw in Marx. In the order of things, Foucault identifies ascription of a hidden truth to capitalism as comporting with a larger 19th century episteme in which the essence of all organisms was presumed buried beneath a mystifying surface. Thus does Foucault historicize, perhaps even hystericize, the invisibility that Marx imbues to relations of power and historical agency in capital. So one might well expect Foucault to approach the question of capitalist economies quite differently. He does, and yet for Foucault, as we'll see, there's a different kind of unknowability to the economy in both liberal and neoliberal orders. To begin with, the story in the order of things is, as most of you know, but one chapter in Foucault's own formulation of the invisibility and visibility of power. You'll recall that in volume one of the history of sexuality, Foucault argues, quote, power is tolerable only on condition that it masks a substantial part of itself. Its success, he continues, is proportional to an ability to hide its own mechanisms. Here, Foucault tenders the thesis, less specific to capitalism, less precise in general, of power's inherently veiled quality, required for its existence as power at all. As soon as power is outed, it loses its potency. But it is in the security, territory, population, and birth of biopolitics lectures, the college lectures of the late 70s, that Foucault directly addresses the visibility and knowability of economic life in liberal and neoliberal regimes. It's very complicated to think about Marx and Foucault together here because the powers in and of economic life, as I've already suggested, are not primary in Foucault's analysis of neoliberalism in the birth of biopolitics or his genealogy of liberal governmentality in security, security territory, and population. As I'll suggest in a moment, this has a lot to do with what I'll call the liberal conceptualization of the economy that Foucault adopts. One that conceives the economy as a field of competition and exchange, essentially con conceives it as markets, and regards the economy from the perspective of governing populations and governing individuals. From this angle, the issue of visibility and knowability pertains to dynamics of markets, not to what Marx considered primary capitalism's root powers in the production process. 
Similarly, governmentality as a concept and practice centers for Foucault not on the reproduction of class, but on managing populations and managing the conduct of individual subjects. So in both these sets of lectures, Foucault is concerned with the ways that the economy and the economic are positioned in the doctrine and governing practices of liberalism, where significantly he doesn't distinguish between political and economic modulations of liberalism. His liberalism features, on the one hand, what he calls a limit on governing set by the unknowability and hence untouchability of the economy by sovereign power. And I'll just say that once more for those of you not familiar with these lectures. That is the place where Foucault is going to locate the power of liberalism in relationship to the economy or the power of the economic in relationship to liberalism. So Foucault's liberalism features, on the one hand, a limit on governing set by what he calls the unknowability and hence untouchability of the economy by sovereign power. And his liberalism features, on the other hand, a new focus on governing the individual through incentivizing entrepreneurial human capital, a way of what he calls conducting conduct through such governance. So while the concept of governmentality in security territory population is developed in part to relate the political and the economic at the level of reason, truth, power, and limits, Foucault's fusion here privileges the state and refracts the economic through a liberalism by which the state is understood to govern. That is, despite aspiring to a simultaneous examination of the reciprocity and co-constitution of economic and political discourses, the concept of governmentality remains somewhat asymmetrical in its aim and weight. Put another way, with governmentality, Foucault conceives the economy through a liberal imaginary, hence as a market where individuals oriented by interest make choices. Yes, it's a domain for governing populations and individuals. That's the point of construing liberal governmentality as biopolitics. And it defines the limits of such governing very differently from juridical limits. That's the point about thinking about the economy as unknowable and hence untouchable by the liberal and later neoliberal state. But conceived as the stage for governing, the economy for Foucault does not appear as a field of power relations fundamentally constituted by class. It's not centered in production, and it's not itself generative of political and social power. If from the perspective of governmentality, Foucault doesn't formulate the economy or the economic as a scene of social powers, or as featuring the power of capital, if he instead approaches them through the lens of liberalism, this makes Foucault's orientation toward economic life and economic thought so deeply un-Marxist, not just anti-Marxist, but un-Marxist, that I think we need to pause to query it. It's one thing to bring reason, rationality, truth, and governing back into an analysis of capitalism, as Foucault certainly does. It's another to drain out of that analysis the powers of capital, private ownership, proletarianization, and the role of the state in securing the conditions of capital accumulation. It's one thing, as Foucault does, to revisit the relationship of liberal practices of government in relationship to the economic. It's another to jettison wholesale the Marxist critique of liberal constitutional states as securing while mystifying the powers that organize material life, generate history, condition human action and thought. 
It's one thing to take liberalism seriously as governmentality and not just dismiss it as ideology. It's another thing to inhabit its view of the economy, that the economy is unknowable because un un untouchable because unknowable, that it's populated only by calculating interested individuals governed by structured incentives, that its fundamental principle is exchange or competition. Foucault knows better, so what gives? Foucault's crankiness about Marx and Marxists at this point in his life is well known. But there is, I think, more than anti-Marxism animating his peculiar angle on the economy in these lectures. In fact, Foucault's not interested in capitalism. He's interested in liberalism's and then neoliberalism's way of specifically relating state, economy, and subject and he's interested in the implications of these relations for governing, for limits on governing, for state purposes, legitimacy. In security, territory, and population, his focus is on the shift from physiocratic to laissez-faire formulations in articulating and developing liberal government. In birth of biopolitics, the focus is on the shift from liberal to neoliberal governmentality. In both, what he's concerned with is how the economy is figured and positioned vis-a-vis -vis sovereign power associated with the state and also with how non- and parastate governing take shape. That is how the economy becomes a whole domain of governmentality apart from sovereignty and how subjects are conducted by a normative order of reason, figuring them exhaustively as economic actors. A liberal formulation of homo economicus for Foucault becomes the scene of discipline and security in the college lectures called Security, Territory, and Population. A neoliberal formation is the scene of conduct in the birth of biopolitics. In both sets of lectures, governmentality through political economy largely augments juridical and police forms of power, according to Foucault. As political economy becomes what he calls an art of government, population becomes both its end and its instrument, the object of government manipulations biopower is born. So Foucault's concern with the economy in these lectures pertains to its novel functioning in limiting government while empowering the state on the one hand and in organizing the population through needs and interests on the other. From this perspective, the economy does not comprise capital and labor, production and circulation, and it's not particularly world-making. Rather, the economy is a new scene of the art of government both a source of knowledge and the canvas for this art. And in the birth of biopolitics, the freedom being attributed to the economy by neoliberal rationality has both a state-creating and state-legitimating function, even as it pulls the state ever deeper and more openly into servicing capital, facilitating capital's conditions without intervening, even as it becomes more and more invested in propping capital without actually touching. So Foucault's concern with the economic is less with the nature of capitalism than with the precise way that the political role and semiotics of the market divide liberalism from neoliberalism. In liberalism, he says, and I'm quoting, the market is a source of the state's enrichment, growth, and therefore power. By contrast, with neoliberalism, market freedom is, and I'm quoting again, the state's foundation and limit at the same time, both the state's guarantee and its security. It's why we measure uh, success in states or success in politicians by the question of economic growth in neoliberalism.
but not in liberalism. Liberalism, he says, features the market generating the power of the state. Neoliberalism turns this upside down to feature the state in service to the unknowable dynamics of the market. Still, it's not as if Foucault has no concern with capitalism in these lectures. He's also engaged in a critique of what he takes to be Marxist dehistoricizations of capitalism, Marxist wrongheadedness. Because, he says, Marxists understand the economic logic of capital and accumulation as determinant in history, for them there can only be, and I'm quoting him, one capitalism, since there's only one logic of capital, and he's really snide when he's saying this. By contrast, what does Foucault insist on? Formulating capitalism as emerging from what he calls an economic institutional ensemble capable of being acted on in such a way as to be able to invent a different capitalism. Here, he's actually affirming the ordo-liberal view that capitalism has no essence and can be politically redesigned. Put differently, Foucault's study of neoliberal governmentality, which brings about a new state economy relation, a new subject formation, and more, is a critique of the Marxist formulation of historical change rooted in the mode of production. This formulation for him obscures the conditioning and the very production of economic life through truth, through governance, through law, through norms. So he's offering both a critique of a materialist frame for capitalism's powers, logics, and transformations, and a critique of the idea that one can ever discern the truth about its non-manifest powers. It's an order of reason. Therefore, there's no truth underneath it. Now, as I've already suggested, Foucault certainly flirted at times with the notion that power is inherently veiled or in hiding, thus conceding a certain separation of power from its truth where he ordinarily emphasized a more Nietzschean approach to the, what he considered the more fused or imbricated truth-power relation. But in the neoliberalism lectures, Foucault shows no interest whatsoever in the veiled dimensions of power or regimes of truth. He's concerned instead with what he calls the market as the veridiction principle of a new form of governmentality, the way that the market becomes truth the way that price becomes truth, the reality principle by which the world and everything in it, including us, is organized. This notion of veridiction takes truth beyond the Nietzschean frame. It's beyond the question of interpretation or the imbrication of power with truth through what Foucault will call discourse drawing from Nietzsche. Instead, it means that while for Marx, capitalism's self-representations have two opposites, both illusion and error. For Foucault, there's no opposite to neoliberal veridiction at all. There's only alternative orders of reason that might challenge it. That is, I'll put this a different way, for Marx, the truth generated by capitalism, which is actually not the truth of capitalism, but the truth we live in with capitalism, harbors two opposites, deception and error. Capitalism's inherent dissimulations produce both. They produce deceit about capitalism's true operations and true nature, its exploitation, its inequality, its unfreedoms. And they produce error in its representation of what makes capitalism work and generate profit. Rather than exchange in the market, the truth is extraction of surplus value and production. 
not price but value, not a priori land, labor, and capital, but the very generation of these things through primitive accumulation, the enclosure movements, dispossession, and more. But for Foucault, what he calls the market as a site of veridiction for governmental practice or, and I'm quoting him again, competitive markets as the reality principle of neoliberal societies. These formulations depict truth as governing, as generative, and as self-validating. The very neologism, veridiction, establishes truth as a contingently produced lodestar rather than a scientific discovery. It's active, non-relativist, itself a power, and of course extensively consorting with other powers. Of course, this veridiction can still be brought into crisis, but not by revealing it as a lie, only not by revealing it as a cover-up or a hypocrisy. Rather, the crisis can only be one of manifest failure. When the reality principle of neoliberalism comes to be recognized as destructive or even catastrophic, as in the 2008-09 financial crisis. At this moment, however, absent an alternative mode of reason, there is no reason to expect a revolutionary formation, but only reaction, whether from the right, Trump, or the left, Sanders. So where are we? Against Marx's formulation of the truth of the economy as inherently mystified by the production process itself, Foucault offers an account of the economy itself as fundamentally unknowable, and he offers an account of the neoliberal state as secured by what he calls this form of veridiction resting in this unknowability, a veridiction that is thus uniquely invulnerable to accountability. For Marxists, Foucault's adoption of the liberal view of the economy as a market, his consequent failure to probe or feature economic powers in the realm of production, means that he remains in the order of capitalism's manifest yet false self-representation. But the powers with which Foucault is concerned are those of, and I'll repeat it again, liberal or neoliberal governmentality governing subjects through a political order of reason, conducting conduct, managing populations, remaking the state, refashioning the state economic relation, and so forth. If this governmentality entails and even orchestrates a certain mo mode or style of capitalism, it's not itself capitalism. Rather, what Foucault quotes the neoliberals as calling the unknowability of the market, this unknowability constitutes the limits, the truth, and hence the legitimacy of neoliberal governmentality. Marx, on the other hand, is concerned with the lived invisibility of the real nature of economic relations and power, their fundamental opacity to their subjects. One could say that for Foucault, governmentality is built from what Marx depicts as the false truths emanating from capital relations. But clearly, both thinkers would resist this formulation. Foucault, because he takes liberal and neoliberal governmentality to be built from modes of reason, emanating from intellectuals and policymakers, and then circulating through society as this modality of reason takes hold, becomes ubiquitous in governing practices at work sites, at educational sites, and everywhere else. And Marx would re resist it because he understands us as bewitched, not governed by these false truths. So how might we think these two accounts together? 
especially for purposes of understanding and responding politically to neoliberalism today? How might we think across them in ways that opened the siloed truth of power in each and in neoliberalism itself? These questions aren't quite the same. One's a problem of theory and one's a problem of world. But I want to conclude very briefly by considering them together. Here's my hypothesis. Actually existing neoliberalism, what we've got, features both a set of instruments of capitalist redistribution upwards through privatization, through deregulation, through regressive taxation, and it features a political rationality, generating novel human subjects and subjectivities, new ordinance of meaning, and new social relations, apart from this redistribution upwards. These two developments, in other words, are non-identical. They don't emanate from the same sources. They're not always even in sync with one another, even as they commingle and at times give contingent shape to each other. What has come to be called accumulation by dispossession is not driven by a political rationality of human capital appreciation, but that rationality shapes the governance of the dispossessed. Emerging sharing or open source economies are often at odds with neoliberal governance that aims to seed competition among radically decentralized units. But this governance modality introduces a brutal survivalism and depressed remunerative scale, think Uber, into these sharing economies. Another example, structural adjustment policies chafe against neoliberal governance policies that promulgate internal economic diversification. Downsizing and flexibilizing the professoriate in formerly public universities, seeking to extract more teaching from the professoriate for, for, for less cost, that is fundamentally at odds with a neoliberal governance valuation that calibrates our value through metrics that measure the importance of teaching at precisely zero versus publishing in irrelevant journals judged to have impact factor because members of the discipline have figured out how to game them. Above all, neoliberal rationality can continue to govern subjects and institutions even as explicit neoliberal economic policies are rejected or reversed or augmented. And I think this is the recent story in Uruguay, in Argentina, in Greece, and soon perhaps other parts of Southern Europe. So what I'm suggesting is that rather than conceiving Marx and Foucault as each missing a methodological or objective piece of a neoliberal totality, we ought to treat each as theorizing a dimension, not merely a face, but a dimension of non-total powers and logics comprising our condition. While they intersect in certain practices, these dimensions, I think, need to remain somewhat analytically distinct if we are to grasp the different kinds of truth that neoliberalism both circulates and buries, and the different powers and instruments through which neoliberalism makes the world and its inhabitants. So the approach I'm suggesting differs from treating neoliberal rationality as the ideology of neoliberal economic organization on the one hand, and it differs from treating neoliberal rationality as the precondition of its material iteration on the other. Those would be two other ways of putting Marx and Foucault together, and I'm suggesting um, that neither one comports with what I'm trying to 
um, formulate. Now this said, thinking with and between Marx and Foucault may also help unknot the political problem that I've been worrying, rooted in the unknowable or invisible nature of economic relations specified very differently by each. Let me recapitulate the problem. If Foucault, we might now just say imbibing a little too much Hayek, sees like a liberal in depicting how states are governmentalized and how in individuals are conducted by ne neoliberalism, he also perhaps imbibes a little bit too much Gary Becker and sees like a Weberian in figuring this new reality principle established through what he essentially presents as a seamless and total political rationality. Marx, on the other hand, imbibing too much Hegel and conceits of 19th century science, is mesmerized by capital's self-disguising alchemies, conversions, inversions, and shell games. For Foucault, neoliberalism is secured by virtue of a government rationality in which the veridiction of the market, its truth principle, establishes it as incontestable and ubiquitously applicable, even as its actual dynamics are unknowable. The political rationality of neoliberalism secures in Foucault's understanding the ubiquitous rule of markets, while the veridiction of markets in turn secures the legitimacy of neoliberalism. For Marx, it's capitalism's unique structure and dynamics that generate this veridiction and keep its true nature hidden. Now, as I suggested earlier, the fundamental unknowability or invisibility of economic life in each analysis makes the analyses themselves oddly disempowering. If ordinary humans cannot apprehend the powers by which they are organized and compelled and governed, if ordinary humans cannot actually apprehend the powers by which they are conducted, if they have to come to Sosfe and sit in seminars to learn what these powers are and how to surface them, how can ordinary humans be expected to target and appropriate them rather than simply remaining lost to their effects? But what I want to suggest in, in, in the end is that the Marxist theoretical angle and object of analysis might help open the Foucauldian vault and vice versa. The heavy and intentional hand of neoliberal governmentality is revealed when it becomes clear that the economic order, far from untouchable, demands to be touched, scooped in financial crisis, pulled back from fiscal cliffs, routinely titrated and regulated, assisted by ever more complex legal arrangements and workarounds. That hand is also revealed as generative of new sources of wealth, and new sources of impoverishment, new trajectories of inequality, new fiefdom of, fiefdoms of indented debtors, populations, and whole nations. Only through tracking the operation of this rationality and its institutionalization in government, governance, for example, can we grasp how the neoliberalization of formerly public universities redistributes wealth and access upward at every turn, from students to staff to faculty, to programs, through institutional remaking by neoliberal governance that does not have that as its explicit aim. That is, neoliberal governance that does not have regressive redistribution upward of access and wealth as its aim. The political rationality of neoliberalism reveals the mechanisms of this vast new redistribution upwards of wealth, power, access, and prestige in what was formerly an institution devoted to 
redistribution of the opposite kind, but the analytic orientation of neoliberal governmentality isn't alert to these effects and isn't particularly trying to produce them. On the other hand, analysis that's moored in the political economy of profit extraction through exploitation or rents or class or the making of the indebted man can't really reveal these mechanisms. All it can do is point to the effects. So political economy cannot reveal all the powers by which these effects are generated, powers of neoliberal norms, schemes of value, by which the public university is being remade in its micro-tissues. Still, without a political economic account of privatization, we can't bring into view forces that animate and accelerate this transformation, including those that make private sector norms and things like best practices appear appropriate to university life, classrooms, and research in the first place. The same is true with another example, attempts to comprehend and reveal the powers of the so-called sharing economy. Marxists tend to argue that sharing arises in the wake of dismantled public provisions, thrives in a political atmosphere of deregulation, and sustains growing numbers of on or underemployed subjects who now cannibalize in order to capitalize their homes, their bodies, their cars, their bikes, their spare time, or whatever other assets they can come up with for survival. But this argument doesn't fathom the production of the sharing economy by a political rationality of ubiquitous economization, where the values of capitalization, access, and value enhancement overtake those of ownership, privacy, and profit. And where rating and ranking is a more important source of value enhancement than surplus value generated from exploitable labor. As you all know, two bad user ratings constitute a much more sustained financial threat to an Airbnb host than an uptick in house cleaning wages. Now seen from both angles, what I'm suggesting is that the forces and powers animating and organizing sharing economies explode its affable surface while at the same time explaining why it's so seductive, even as sharing economies do indeed index and intensify inequality and precarity. Seen from only one angle or the other, each analysis depicts certain effects, but not the mechanisms or the powers generating them. The veridiction accompanying neoliberal economization of the state, privatization of the public, capitalization of the human being becomes challengeable from the maldistribution of power and possibility that these phenomena produce. But neither the growing inequalities nor the crisis tendency of neoliberal capitalism can be protested politicized without challenging the governing rationality that's rooted in and circulates this veridiction. With only a Foucauldian schema of neoliberal rationality, it's difficult to bring capital into view and to challenge the myths of neoliberal governmentality, where the state is figured as serving an economy that can't be touched because it can't be known. Attention to economic powers and dynamics and imperatives has always constituted the basis for a critique for liberalism's categories and universalism, of course, its hidden hand in the making of class and poverty, the reproduction of advantage, and formulating the intimacies of economic and state power. But with only a Marxist schema, it's impossible to see the normative order of reason that governs us and that consecrates the truth of markets 
as capitalism's sole and exhaustive truth, the operation of price as truth, and increasingly of rankings as truth, truth that themselves disappear the generative power of capitalism. My suggestion, in short, is that the buried truths of structuring dynamics featured in each analysis, a burying that tacitly disables popular critique, is partly redressed not by conjoining but by standing between them. I'm not arguing for blending the theories because I'm unconvinced that neoliberal governmentality and neoliberal capitalism are unified processes. Rather, what I'm suggesting is that attention to governmentality helps reveal the powers theorized by Marx as hidden, and in turn, attentions to new forms of capital and multipliers of inequality allow us to identify, rather than merely be claimed by or inhabit, the reality principle governing the everyday economization of life. In place, in short, of dialectical, comparative, or genealogical approaches, let alone theoretical systems of totalities, simply arguing for a kind of dual vision that operates with and across the two frames. Thanks.